Would you turn with me to the 12th chapter of 2 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians 12, verses 11 and following. I heard a story uh, a couple of weeks ago about an eminent physici- uh, physicist who was traveling around the country lecturing on quasars, these uh, strange, mysterious energy forces out in the universe. And uh, he was traveling from one town to the next, giving the same lecture over and over again. And after repeating this lecture uh, 30 or 40 times, he was getting quite tired. He pulled into a small Midwestern uh, town where he was to speak and uh, said to his chauffeur, who had accompanied him throughout his trip, that he just didn't think he could go on. He was much too tired. His chauffeur responded that uh, he thought he could probably give the lecture. He had heard it enough times that he thought he could give it verbatim. So uh, the physicist said, all right, let's try it. You uh, put on my chauffeur's hat and sit in the back, and, uh, and, uh, give the, and uh, I'll put on your chauffeur's hat and sit in the back, and you can give the lecture. And that's what they did, and the man pulled it off beautifully. And at the end, they gave him a standing ovation. The uh, master of ceremonies uh, who had introduced him stood up after the talk and said, Professor, that was uh, brilliant. And I noticed by my watch that we have about five minutes. Perhaps someone would like to ask questions. At which point, a scientist stood up and said, "Uh, Professor, how do you relate Einstein's theory of a curved universe to your theory of quasar location? And uh, for a moment, the man panicked. But uh, then he had a a sudden inspiration, and he said, "Uh, Sir, I am amazed that you would ask such a simple-minded question. That's a question that a child could answer, and to prove how simple that question is, I'm going to have my chauffeur answer. (laughs) The moral of which is, uh, our human genius very often depends on another. And uh, that's the point that I think Paul is making in 2 Corinthians 12. Will you uh, follow along with me as I read, beginning with verse 11? Paul says, I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. Paul uh, would say, as our President Reagan says, there I go again, talking foolishness again. But uh, you've driven me to it. As a matter of fact, it's your fault. You should have defended me. You should have protected me against my detractors. I shouldn't have to defend myself. For I am not in the least, he says, inferior to these uh, super apostles, as he uh, has, has named them, even though I am nothing. The things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you with great perseverance. That is, in the face of opposition, I, I functioned as an apostle, and I, I uh, authenticated my ministry through the signs and, and miracles and wonders that accompanied the apostolic ministry. These things were done among you with great perseverance. How were you inferior to the other churches, except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. A little bit of gentle irony there. Perhaps uh, those men that were Paul's opponents in Corinth were saying to the church in Corinth, because they didn't have the origins of an apostolic church, they weren't founded by an apostle. They were inferior to the church in Jerusalem, which was founded by apostles. But Paul says, you're not in the least inferior to any of the other churches. You're an apostolic church. And I'm not inferior to these super apostles, these most eminent men who claim to be apostles on a level higher than I. 
though I am nothing. Now this for me is a very, very interesting passage. This is one of those passages tucked where there's a very profound insight into human nature tucked away in a most unexpected place. Because if we understand this passage correctly, it gives us the balance of life that enables us to understand ourselves, to know who we are. Because contained in this passage is the key to discovering your worth as an individual. I, I understand from uh, some of the uh, research that's been done that the primary problem that most women struggle with is worthlessness. And I think much of it comes from the fact that, uh, that they're not appreciated in the home. They do all sorts of things that uh, they are very menial tasks, you know, washing dishes and cleaning house and uh, taking care of children and pressing clothes and cooking, uh, cooking meals. And they get very little feedback, uh, despite what the commercials say. The toilet bowls do not talk back to you. <laughs> they do not express appreciation for using Santa Flush or whatever it is that you use to clean your toilet bowls. And most uh, husbands, being the clods that we are, forget to express appreciation. We don't tell you how much we appreciate you and how much we depend upon you and how noble your task is and what an important part you play in, in supporting us and taking care of, of the children. And, of course, uh, our society doesn't help much by uh, reminding us over and over again that real satisfaction is found out there in the world. I saw a t-shirt the other day a woman was wearing that had an inscription on the front that said, Women belong in the House and in the Senate. <laughs> and I agree. There's, I think, I think that's, that's a, a noble ambition for a woman, to be in the House or to be in the Senate or to be President of the United States. I see nothing in Scripture that forbids that sort of thing. But there are a lot of women who don't want to be in the house. They want to be in the home. And uh, that, that kind of, uh, that's a fatal attraction from the world to, to find your satisfaction someplace else and to tell you you'll never find it in the home. A lot of people just feel, a lot of women feel utterly worthless and used and exploited in the home. A lot of men feel worthless, particularly those of you that are out of work right now. There's nothing like being out of work to to damage your ego. It shouldn't be that way. Work is not ultimate, but we've made it ultimate. And in our minds, worklessness is tantamount to worthlessness. At least that's the transfer that we make. And a lot of you men, I know, don't have jobs. And you're hurting, struggling with a, a lack of, of self-worth, wondering who you are. It's that very issue that Paul is talking about here. I want you to notice the two phrases that he uses that don't seem to go together, but do. They seem mutually contradictory. It's an odd kind of uh, juxtaposition, placing together, joining together, two ideas that don't seem to fit together. Do you read it? Do you understand what Paul is saying? I am nothing, he says, but I'm not inferior to anybody. I'm an apostle. Apostles were the, were the highest officials in the church. Paul says in Ephesians 4, first we were given prophets and then apostles. Apostles had clout. They had the authority of, of the Lord himself. Paul says, I don't, uh, I don't stand behind anyone in terms of my authority in, in the church. Though, as you know, he never used his, his, his raw authority 
He didn't demand that people shape up. He always appealed out of love and, and encouraged. He was that sort of man. But he had the authority to come in. He writes to the church in Thessalonica and he says, When you heard our words, you didn't, you didn't hear the word of man. You heard the word of God. These men didn't take a back seat to anyone. But yet Paul says, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. But I'm not inferior to anyone. Now that's the beautiful balance, I think, of Scripture. And it's the balance of mature thinking. And it's what helps us find out who we are. We are at one and at the same time nothing. And yet we're not inferior to anyone. We are nothing in that everything we have comes from God. The very breath you draw, the very fact that you're alive today, you owe to God. Uh, all of your physical strength and ability comes from God. We have a young man in our congregation here who probably uh, jumps higher than anybody in the world, or we hope he will this, this year. An uh, incredible athlete, a delight to watch. He just soars over that, that bar. It's, just, it's amazing. Some of you have seen him on television or seen him in person. But apart from God, he would just be a blob of protoplasm sitting here this morning, or he wouldn't even exist. That's why David said, by my God, I have run through a troop. By my God, I have jumped over a wall. There are all sorts of amazing things that we can do with our bodies. But it's because God gives the ability. We couldn't do anything apart from God. You've all heard the story of the man who walked by a beautiful garden and commented on the beauty that God had placed on the earth and the gardener said well you should have seen it when, when God had this piece of land the implication being that God didn't do much with it but I did but what we forget is that it's God who gave the man the green thumb it's God who gave the man the ability to make that a, a garden spot and apart from God he could do nothing all of our business ability our, 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 our skill and acumen as, as, as businessmen comes from God you know the story that Jesus told about the man who had a bumper crop and the whole thing went to his head? And he said, I know what I'll do. I'll, uh, I'll build a bigger barn and then I'll kick back and take it easy for the rest of my life. I'll eat, drink, and be merry. Jesus said, you're a fool. This night, he says, your soul can be required of you. You have a massive coronary and it's all over. It's craziness to think that way. We are nothing apart from God. But with God, we're everything. We have everything we need. The minds that you have, the ability that you have to think, the insight that you have into truth, the physical appearance that you have, the business ability, the skill with your hands, that all comes from God, you see. And as Paul points out, the heart of the matter is the capacity that God has given you to serve other Christians. That's what he's centering on. He could have talked about any number of things that God had done for him. But he centers on the fact that he was an apostle given to the church to build the church up. What, what you are in your business, what you are in your home, is a part of the matter. The heart of the matter are the, those constellation, that constellation of gifts, that cluster of, of giftedness that God has given to you that enables you to, to help others on to God, to grow and increase in, in their understanding of him. And it's understanding all of that that helps us know who we are. We are at one and the same time. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Utterly, totally dependent upon God. But at the same time, we're not inferior to anyone. 
That, that saves us from that false humility that says, oh, I'm nothing, I can't do anything. John the Baptist, as I've said before, always stands out in my mind as an example of a man who understood who he was. He was out preaching in the wilderness. Pharisees came out to him and they said, who, who do you think you are? Are you the Messiah? No, I'm not the Messiah. Well, who are you? I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. He didn't shrink. He didn't say, I'm nobody. He said, I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. And the one referred to in Malachi and Isaiah, who is to come and to, to announce the coming of the Savior and prepare the way for him. It's very audacious when you think about it of any man to say that. I'm the one that Isaiah talked about. But we know what a humble man he was. He, he says of Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease. So that, those are the two ideas we have to keep in our mind at the same time. I am nothing. I am nobody. And yet I am somebody by the grace of God. Now Paul goes on because he, he not only is talking about who he is, but he, he talks about the, the, the way in which this works out. Read with me, uh, beginning with verse 14. Paul says, I'm ready to visit you for the third time, and I'll not be a burden to you, because what I want is not your possessions, but you. Three times, uh, two times prior to, this, to, to the writing of this book, he'd be in Corinth. Now he says, I'm coming the, the third time, and, and what I'm coming for is not to collect an offering. It, it's not to line my pockets. I don't want your things, he says. I'm not interested in your possessions. What I want is you. After all, children should not have to save up for their, for their parents, but parents for their children. That's normally the, the way we do it. Josh doesn't uh, pay me my allowance. He doesn't save up for me. Uh, hopefully I'm saving up for him. Yeah, not always true. I read of a man who, uh, whose will was read and uh, his family gathered and uh, as the, the attorney read the will, uh, he said, uh, I, being in sound, of, of sound mind, uh, spent all my money. <laughs> Some of you have seen the bumper sticker on the back of, uh, of uh, mobile homes that reads, I'm spending my children's inheritance. So it isn't always true, but normally parents save up for their children. They're not trying to exploit or take from their children. They want to give. That's what Paul is saying. I don't want your things. I don't want your possessions. I don't want your money. I just want you. And I'll be gladly spent for you. Everything I, I'll spend everything for you and everything I have and expend myself as well. If, if I love you the more, will you love me less? Isn't that poignant? I've poured out my life for you. Does this mean that you're, you're going to love me even less because I've, I've given so much? Be that it is as it may, I have not been a burden to you yet. Crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. He's using irony again. This is what was said of him. The, the, his, his opponents in Corinth were saying, that, that Paul is a tricky fellow. He'll get you into his confidence, and then he'll reach for your wallet. You watch out. When he comes through, that's what he's going to do. Paul says, I'm a tricky fellow. It's the sort of thing you can expect of me. But think back, did I ever exploit you through any of the men I sent you? I urged Titus to go to you, and I sent our brother with him. Titus didn't exploit you, did he? Did we not act in the same spirit and follow the same course? Think of any time, Paul says, that I ever manipulated you or used you or exploited you or ripped you off. Not once did I ever do that. Nor did any of the men that I've sent. They have the same spirit of goodwill that I have. Paul said, I, I don't want your things, I want you. 
And what he's talking about is a servant's heart, a willingness to serve, a willingness to give. And that's always the mark of someone who understands who they are and what they're about. They're servants. Remember the story that Jesus told uh, back in Luke 17? You women have just recently studied that in the women's Bible studies. It has to do with uh, the sort of thing that frequently occurred in Roman households. Jesus said, suppose uh, one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and, and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we're just unworthy servants. We've only been doing our our duty. There's, a, in my mind, a difference between serving people and, and being a servant. If you have it in your mind to serve people, then the tendency is to pick and choose the kind of service that we'll perform. But if we have a servant's heart, then we don't pick and choose. We don't care who we serve or what we get out of it. We don't expect any feedback, any thank you notes, any telephone calls. Any words of appreciation, we just, you know, we, they're, they're nice to have, but we don't depend on them. We just want to serve. Ray Stedman tells the story of a little boy who uh, finished up some chores around the house and left a note on his mother's uh, plate at breakfast. It said, mowing the lawn, one dollar. Babysitting uh, John, three dollars. Taking out the trash, 50 cents. And he had it all added up, totaled. And and it was left there on her plate. And uh, that, that morning when he came in for breakfast, there was the $3.50 on the plate. And alongside was a little note that said, For walking the floor with you when you had colic, nothing. For, uh, for tending your owies, nothing. For washing your clothes, nothing. For transporting you and your friends, nothing. Okay. That's what Paul's saying. That's the kind of heart that we ought to have. If we really understand who we are, then we don't need a lot of feedback. We don't need a lot of support. We don't need to have people ministering to us all the time. We can just serve. Now, uh, Paul goes on to explain what that service is all about and to what end it's intended. He says in verse 19, Have, have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ, and everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. Paul says, uh, you, you thought I was defending myself before you, but really it's before God's tribunal that, that we stand. And whatever it is we've done, if it needs any justification, we simply want you to know that we've done it for you. It's been for your sake. For I am afraid, Paul says, that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I am afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity Sexual sin and debauchery, uh, it really is a word that describes a sensual lifestyle, living for the senses, a kind of hedonistic, pleasure-absorbed uh, life. 
and debauchery in which they have indulged. These were the very sins uh, that occasioned the writing of 1 Corinthians, as you know, and it doesn't sound like things have gotten much better. Same problems. And Paul says, when I come to Corinth, I, I, I'm coming as, as a servant, and the purpose of my coming is to rid you of those vices, those sins that are inhibiting the growth of the body. That's my only concern, is to strengthen the body of Christ. I want to, I want to help you rid yourself of those sins. And he mentions some of the big ticket items like impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery. But he also co-mingles with those things like gossip and slander and an argumentative spirit and a divisive heart and those smaller things that we are inclined to gloss over but which are, in God's eyes, just as gross and just as destructive as the more obvious and evil manifestations of sin, such as adultery and and fornication and homosexuality and those things. Now, I, I would say if you're here this morning and you're guilty of adultery, if, if you're having an affair with someone else's wife or husband, or you're thinking about having an affair with someone else's wife or husband, or you are a practicing homosexual, or you are involved in incest with someone in your family, you're sexually abusing or exploiting someone uh, uh, one of your children, then you need to deal with that. I assume that's why you're here this morning. You, you, I can't think of any other reason to come to church on Sunday morning than to hear the Word of God and deal with our sin. You, you need to face it. If that's what you're doing, you may not even be a Christian if you can defend it and justify it. We cannot. We cannot, any of us, defend sin and continue to call ourselves Christians. We're going to talk more about this tomorrow, but uh, next Sunday, but that's very clearly the implication of chapter 13. We can fall into sin, and we're forgiven. But we cannot continue in sin and justify it and defend it and call ourselves a Christian. And if you're here this morning, and you're guilty of any of these, these large sins, then you need to deal with it and not justify it and put it off. You need to put it away today. But I'd say the same thing is true of, of these, uh, these little sins, as we call them. Gossip, slander, jealousy, rage, you know, an anger, a settled anger in your heart against someone who has wronged you or hurt you in some way, an unforgiving spirit. Those are just as frustrating. Those, those are the things that tie God's hands so he cannot put you to his intended use. And they're terrible things to see in the body of Christ. They need to be dealt with and they need to be put away. We can't justify them. We can't defend them. If you have a problem with, with a brother or sister in this church, you need to go to that brother. We should never, ever, ever talk about someone behind their back or defame them or bear false witness against them. We need to go to the brother and face them with their sin. That's... That's the way we heal one another and help one another. Now, it seems to me that, that this, is, this is the way the, the passage develops. The first paragraph talks about uh, how we know who we are. We are at one at the same time. Nobody's, and yet we're somebody. We have God's grace and God's gifts to serve one another. And we serve one another by being a servant. 
We don't have to be up front. We don't have to be in a position of prominence. We just serve wherever the needs are and whoever needs to be served. And the reason we serve is to strengthen one another's heart in God so we can turn away from the sins that frustrate us and inhibit us as members of Christ's body and begin to have an effect upon, upon our world. As Jonathan did for David. It's a great line in the story of Jonathan and David at the end when David was getting, uh, was preparing for exile, readying himself for his flight into the Judean wilderness. Jonathan went to him and it says he strengthened his hand in God. He kept reminding him of the presence of God and the promises of God and the purposes of God in his life. And that's what we need to do for one another. We need to find out who we are by God's grace and serve one another in order to build one another up. Let me tell you, our, our world today, our society is a disaster area. Do you realize that? The materialism, the hedonism, the self-absorption. Uh, as as G.K. Chesterton puts it, people are morally unzipped. Uh, he says they, they think of themselves as untrammeled. What they are is unzipped. Great expression. But at the same time, there is tremendous hunger and hurt and, and fear and emptiness and purposelessness. The two go together. Uh, Leslie Fiedler, who is a, an American critic, calls our society a stupefied society. Western man, he says, has decided to abolish himself, creating his own boredom out of his affluence, having educated himself into imbecility and polluted and drugged himself into stupefaction, he keels over like a weary, battered old brontosaurus and becomes extinct. Dorothy Sayer, who was uh, C.S. Lewis's sidekick, said of her society, and it's just as true of ours, this is, a, this is a culture that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive because there's nothing for which to die. Do you know that according to George Gallup, there are 50 million born-again Christians in the United States today? What are we doing? What kind of influence are we having on our world? Non-Christians don't watch religious television. They could care less. They never, you know, they literally flip us off. They don't go to church on Sunday mornings. They've given up on that. How are we going to reach the world? Well, I'll tell you how. If, if you stop and think for a moment, the metaphors that Jesus suggested of light and, and salt are all descriptive of, of infiltration, permeation, pervasion, penetration. And, and, and if we take heed to this passage... And we realize that by God's grace, we have something to give to the people around us. And we begin to serve so that we grow up as a body of believers. And we begin to think righteously and live righteously in the world. We're going to have an impact on our society. We're not going to move our world through power politics and through legal measures, as good as those things may be. And I, I, if you're uh, a, a Christian young man and young woman and you think that politics is, is, is your field... By all means, get involved as a politician. But for most of us, that's not, 
That's not the option that we have, though we can vote and we can help to restrain evil through just laws. But the, but the one thing that God has given to us by which we can change our society is this principle of, of righteous living, righteous thinking, in your sphere of influence, in your neighborhood, in your home, in your business, in your classroom, right where you are. But you know, unfortunately, we're, we're, we're involved with trivial things, beautifying our homes, beautifying our bodies, making more money, investing ourselves in things that, that in the long run really do not matter. Uh, B.C., in one of his segments, was looking at Willie's Dictionary, defining trivial pursuit as the culmination of man's never-ending search for lack of purpose. <laughs> We've got to get ourselves morally together because that's the only hope that our society has. Paul said the church is the ground and the pillar of reality. That's an amazing statement. We usually turn it around the other way and we say it's the truth that holds the church up. But what Paul is saying is that in society... It's the church that holds the truth up. And he's not talking about buildings and programs and people gathered. He's talking about this people, you and I, going out into the world and thinking and living and talking righteously. And that's what will change our world. And people out there do not know what it's all about. They don't understand. They don't know. We've got to tell them. And it starts right here with us knowing who we are in God and serving one another so that we can all grow up and get about the business of changing the lives of men and women. That's the main thing. And that's the only thing that really matters. The other stuff is just peripheral. It's part of our life. It's not the heart of it. Uh, we were driving to Portland last week. And my theory of travel is to get there. <laughs> And uh, Carolyn's theory is to uh, smell the roses along the way. She has a little sign on her refrigerator that says, A good man enjoys the detours along the road of life. And uh, I think she put it there for me. And we were humming down I-84, and she said, we were in the Columbia River Gorge, and she said, Let's take that road. I said, Oh, you know, we need to get to Portland. No, let's take that road. So we went up this little side road, and we ended up on one of those overlooks, and you could look down the canyon both ways. And uh, we were the only people up there, except for this uh, little little fellow, elderly fellow, that was looking for hawks with a pair of glasses. He was scanning the horizon. And uh, we struck up a conversation with him, began to chat with him. And, and uh, you know my wife, she is the gospel choo-choo. <laughs> and uh, before long, we were talking about the Lord. And, you know what that man told us? He was an interesting fellow, retired gentleman in his 70s, had been a truck driver all of his life, tough old guy. Told us he had spent his life in three places, in bars, in brothels, and in churches. And you know why he went to church? Because he was looking for God. And he couldn't find him. He named about five or six churches, not, not specific churches, but denominations, he told us about where he had been looking for God. And he said, you know, I, I, I'd, I'd go into a house of ill repute and I'd see the deacon coming out. We've got to do better than that. that. That gentleman was in his 70s and he had never heard the gospel straight. He didn't know what was going on. 
They had a hunger for God that wasn't being filled. That's a tragedy. With all the truth that's going out over the airways, with all the Christians in the United States, he had never heard the gospel straight. He had never seen it lived authentically. We've got to do better than that. It's tough, but we've got God and all of his resources to get it right. I remember walking through the kitchen one time, seeing Josh trying to draw something on the piece of paper, and he'd draw it a while, and he'd tear it up, throw it away, and he'd draw it for a while, and he'd tear it up, throw it away, and he got so frustrated, I just can't get it right. And for many of us, we would say the same thing, I just can't get it right. But what matters is the intent, the desire, the heart to get it right. And when we begin to, to move in that direction, then we have all of the resources of God to begin to change. Let's ask him to change us. Shall we pray? Some of us this morning may, uh, may need to deal with some sin in our life, some area of resistance, long-term area of resistance that we've been justifying and defending. Jesus said if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some of us have been living very self-centered, self-aggrandizing lifestyles, thinking in terms of, of making our lives more comfortable. Ask the Lord to give us the grace to turn from that and ask him to give us a heart of servanthood, servitude to him and servanthood for others. Some of you don't know what your gifts are and you have no idea what God wants you to do. Just tell him you're available. You want to know. You want to be used. You want to help others strengthen their grip on God. Lord, we thank you this morning for your loving heart, your gentle ways with us. We all deserve judgment and hell. But you've delivered us from that. And you're in the process of saving us, not because we're anything at all, but simply because you love us. And we thank you that by your grace we are what we are. And that we are inferior in that respect to no one. That we do have a place to serve. Help us to get on with it. To do it faithfully. And to persevere in the face of opposition. To be the right kind of fathers and mothers and wives and husbands, children, parents, employers, employees. That you would, we ask that you would fill our lives with grace and beauty and that we might be a sweet aroma of Christ wherever we go. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.